0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In this episode of Boss Files.
1: I really feel that I'm much more present. I'm really present in what I'm doing. I mean, I'm really present with you here. I'm not thinking, what am I doing next? Who is texting me?
2: Ariana Huffington. Ariana the founder of The Huffington Post undergoes a huge personal transformation. One of the most influential women in media. Today she defines herself as a wellness guru and a so-called sleep evangelist. She's on a mission to mend a culture of burnout as the founder of Thrive
1: Global. Corporate America is shifting. There are as always, you know, companies that are ahead of the curve, but everybody's recognizing that if you don't take care of your employees it's going to affect the bottom line
2: why she argues we need to disconnect in a connected world plus the future of uber she's been coined the company's most influential board member so how is she helping rebuild the company's culture following sexual harassment within uber numerous lawsuits and leadership shakeups? her answer no brilliant jerks allowed Here's my conversation with Ariana Huffington. Ariana Huffington, thank you
1: for doing this. Thank you so much, it's great to be with you.
2: It's a pleasure to have you. Um, there is so much to get through, and let's just begin with the different chapters in your life, there have been so many. I've interviewed you over the year, I know there are many more to come, but your current chapter, if you will, is about thriving, it's about living well. So I wonder as we sit here today, how, how do you define success for yourself in this moment?
1: So for me, success now is about accelerating a culture shift that's already happening where we don't live any longer under this delusion that in order to succeed, we have to burn out. Yeah. This has been a very, very deep delusion that has prevailed in our culture for decades. I actually traced it back to the first Industrial Revolution when we became enthralled with machines and we started Sorry. thinking that, um, we want to become like machines, and the goal with machines is minimizing downtime. Mm-hmm. But the human operating system is very different. You know, downtime is a feature, not a bug of the system. And so the goal of the company, and I consider it my mission now, is to help people thrive understand global. that, thrive global. Yes, the company is truly about helping people move from surviving, from always being depleted, Mm. always being in a hurry, always trying to achieve things, but always feeling like there isn't enough time and there isn't enough of them to do everything. To move from that frenetic state to a state of realizing that when we take care of ourselves, we are more effective, we are more creative, Mm -hmm. and we are more successful in a broad definition of the word. And
2: and when we are purposeful, rather than just filling time i mean i I wrote an opinion piece about this recently feeling empty even though i was so busy every hour on my outlook calendar was accounted for but i was empty because i was racing home to be with my daughter i wasn't getting enough time and i didn't need or really want to do all of those things i just said yes to them yes you talk a lot about the importance of saying doing what you call life audits being willing to drop projects that aren't going anywhere, and to say no to things.
1: Yes, I think, um, I loved your piece incidentally, and I think it's great when you write about these things. Let me just say something about that for a minute, because in order to change the culture, we need both data and stories. Sure. So data is obvious. It's like the science is in, it's unequivocal, well-being improves performance. But stories are incredibly important. And so on the Thrive Global Media platform, we have a series of new role models. We'd love to cross-post your piece because we want successful people like you in the arena talking about this topic, giving permission to everyone else who feels that the only way to succeed is to be always on, not to take care of themselves, to Mm -hmm. recognize that the truth is very much like what they say on aeroplanes put your own oxygen mask on first. I love that. Before you can help others. I never
2: thought about that. So let's talk more about that in a moment and and your moment in life when you had I mean you fell and you injured yourself and that has led to all this. But before we get there I want to tell people a little bit about you, Ariana, and your extraordinary upbringing and how you got to this place in your life. The New Yorker big big profile on you you remember back in 2008. Here's the way it described you. She has the ability to command attention and change minds. Not money seems to be Huffington's driving quest. Is that an accurate description, the ability to, to command attention and change minds?
1: Well, going back to Cambridge, where I went to school. Um, England, not Massachusetts. In England, yes, Cambridge, England. Um, I fell in love with the Cambridge Union, which was the debating society, and the reason is because I loved what was happening there, which was the spectacle of moving people's hearts and minds. So I think it's really hearts and minds, and, uh, and uh, I'm absolutely passionate about the need right now for a culture shift, yeah. and that's going to require moving hearts and minds. You did
2: not grow up with a lot of money at all. You grew up in Athens, a one-bedroom apartment. Mm -hmm. Is that right? When it wasn't just you in that apartment. It was your entire family. Eventually, your your mother would lead the family, really, to to move you guys to London. You had looked at pictures of Cambridge and dreamed of this life. But even when you got there, you lived in a single room with a heater. You say you fed (laughs) with shillings. I mean, it's extraordinary to think back to that, to where you are
1: now. Well that was life at Cambridge, you know. <laughs> I was at Girton yeah. College and You know, these long corridors you had to walk through to get to the bathroom. Um, But it was an amazing experience, and the experience at the Cambridge Union, learning to debate, Mm -hmm. despite my heavy accent, which was uh, very much a subject of ridicule, um, and and learning to communicate, and then accidentally becoming a writer. Mm. Um, I was uh, going to go to the Kennedy School of Government to... Do a postgraduate degree in politics. And you when, did. Ru-
2: you did run at one point. We'll get to that in a yes, moment. Did, but but many writing years later.
1: But I wasn't ever planning to be a writer. But an English mm. publisher happened to see a debate on television where I talked about the changing role of women and asked me if I would write a book on the subject. And I remember I wrote back and I said I can't write. And he <laughs> said, Can you have lunch? And he took me to lunch and offered me a modest advance. Mm-hmm. Um, to see if I could write a book. And that book, uh, called The Female Woman, was my first book at 23, which basically turned me into a writer.
2: Well, it, it did more than that, Ariana. It, it exploded. I mean, you were on television with Barbara Walters. You say you didn't, didn't really phase you because you didn't know who she was at the time. You didn't even know what the Today Show was, and here you were all over the place.
1: I know, it's funny because later she became my first daughter's godmother. <laughs> Uh, it's, it, but, you know, sometimes this is true. It's like if I had been on some tiny little show in on Athens television, I would have been probably more intimidated sure. than being on the today show with Barbara. Tell me about your mom,
2: because you describe her as she, she she's, was Greek, but from Russia. And you describe her as someone with chutzpah.
1: Yes, she was amazing. Uh, I think she's the foundation of everything I've done. Mm because she had this incredible gift to make us feel both, um, my sister and me, um, both unconditionally loved, uh, but also to make us feel that we could aim for the stars, and if we didn't succeed, she wouldn't love us any less.
2: And she would tell you that, that, that failure is just the stepping stone to success. Yes. That's easy to say. Did you, did you believe it, or have you only come to
1: believe that later in life? Well, I definitely took risks, and uh, when my second book was rejected by 36 publishers, Mm. I think definitely my mother's view of failure helped make me more resilient and helped me persevere, (laughs) (laughs) helped me go to a bank that I happened to be passing by (laughs) on St. James's Street and ask for a loan which amazingly the bank manager gave me, and I still send him a Christmas card every year. And, um, and that allowed me to keep things together mm-hmm. until finally I got an acceptance. And that second book, which was a book on the crisis in political leadership, yeah. was published.
2: 37 is the magic number <laughs> for that one, I suppose. One of her sayings for, for your mother, someone who seemed very self-aware always, and, and to truly, as they say, smell the roses, said, don't
1: miss the moment.
2: Yes. But, but you went through much of your life. Missing you would, the moment. Missing the moment.
1: <laughs> yes, absolutely. I was, um, I really did a lot of the things wrong in terms of how I feel now um, we can live a thriving life until 2007, yeah. two years into building the Huffington Post when I collapsed from exhaustion, hit my head on my desk, broke my cheekbone. And that was the beginning of this journey that led me to understanding the new science, to understanding um, that there are different and better ways to live life and to achieve. And um, that's really what um, led me to write my book called Thrive and then a book called The Sleep Revolution And um, at that point, I realized I wanted to do more than write and speak. I wanted to help people bring about small behavioral changes Mm -hmm. that uh, would allow them to actually move from awareness to action.
2: You were pretty injured. And as you say, sort of lying in your pool of your own blood, you realize some things, right? So you're lying on the floor in 2007. The change does not happen immediately, but you say... A doctor's waiting room is a good time to
1: ask life questions. Do you remember what you asked yourself? Yes. Well, first of all, as you know, when something like that happens, uh, you don't know what's wrong with you. You know, do you have a brain tumor? Do you have a heart problem? So I literally found myself going from doctor to doctor, from MRI to echocardiogram. And then in the end, I was given the diagnosis, which was basically... Uh, You have um, civilization's disease, (laughs) burnout, and there's nothing we can do for you. You have to change the way you live your life. Did you buy it? Did you believe it? Yes, I felt it. I believed it. I had started reading the latest science on the subject. Uh, But my hope now is that people can make these changes without having a painful wake-up call.
2: I... With my first baby, I passed out on live television as I'm anchoring the show. This happens to pregnant women. It does, right? But I'm sure contributing to it was, you know, running in all different directions, not sleeping enough, sort of burning it at both ends. And it was,
1: yeah, a wake-up call. In fact, we should collect all the stories because I have heard now the most amazing stories from women. You know, passing out on stage. In your case, passing out. On TV. On I would have preferred it happen at home, but okay. <laughs> you know, just like when we're doing that to ourselves. And if you, if you really sit back and think about it, yeah. if somebody else was imposing this way of life on us, we would be suing them. We would. So we have to sue ourselves. <laughs> we have to sue ourselves. Sue for peace. <laughs> but, and you did. So you talk about
2: what you call now the third metric and that you weren't living that third metric, but
1: it's something your mother embodied her whole life. What is that? Well, right now, if you take the big question that philosophers throughout ages have asked, which is what is a good life? Yeah. And modern culture has shrunken that definition down to what is a successful life, and then shrunken the definition of success down to two metrics, money and power slash status. And for me, that's like trying to sit on a two legged stool. Sooner or later, you fall off. Yeah. And that third leg of the stool is really what Thrive Global is about. The third leg of the stool is, first of all, about your well being and your health. Nothing is worth sacrificing our health to. No. And yet, 75% of healthcare problems and healthcare costs are because of stress related preventable diseases. 75%, you know. you could do everything perfectly, and an act of God, something happens. But 75%... That's in the United States. uh, Well, yes, but it's pretty global, too. Mm. All these problems are really global epidemics. Yeah. And um, the second um, pillar of this third metric is wisdom. We now have a lot of evidence and a lot of data that shows that when we're depleted, we really don't make the best decisions we don't operate from the most centered, wisest part of ourselves. And a lot of leaders are beginning to realize that. I mean, Jeff Bezos wrote a beautiful piece for Thrive Global, and the headline was, Why Am I Getting Eight Hours of Sleep is Good for Amazon Shareholders. And he literally analyzed his Mm decision-making and talked about how when he gets six hours, his decisions are 5 to 20% less good. Mm -hmm. And after all... As he put it, I'm not judged by the number of decisions I make, but by the quality of decisions I make. So that's wisdom. The third thing is wonder. You know, I think there's something very magical about being alive. There's so much mystery that we don't have answers to, but being in the question, asking the questions, I think is, is an essential part of thriving.
2: More from my interview with Ariana Huffington after the break. You have called exploring inner space, inner space, the ultimate adventure. And it sounds like that's what you have been doing now.
1: Yes, and that's part of wonder, because, you know, there's this obsession with exploring outer space. And that's great. I get it. I have zero desire
2: to go to the moon or Mars. or Mars. No,
1: we're not signing (laughs) up. But I think exploring inner space and finding out, you know, what human life is ultimately about. Talking about death, I am a big believer in death conversations, you know, and not in a morbid way, but because it's an essential part of life. As, as the Onion headline put it, a death rate holds steady at one hundred percent. There
2: you go. Despite
1: all the billion dollars spent to prolong uh, our lives and achieve immortality, we're not anywhere near close to that. And, and the final fourth pillar of the third metric is giving, mm. purpose, you know, something that is bigger than ourselves. What, uh, what have you said no
2: to? Because that's been sort of my challenge for myself, and I'm, I'm getting better at it. I'm not there yet. But have you found that to do this, I mean, you must have, to sleep more, to be more present, to be in the moment, you have to say no to things. So what Absolutely. are you saying
1: no to? House of Cards, okay. Game of Thrones. TV. Yes. I have not watched anything. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. I would like to. I'm not saying that with any sense of superiority. Yeah. I would love to be able to discuss with my friends. <laughs> Do you also say no to asks? I mean, oh, people yes, ask no? so
2: much of your time.
1: Of course. I mean, I say no to 90% of speaking engagements. Yeah. Um I say no to a lot of things I'd like to do, sure. you know, sometimes no to dinner with friends. If I have to get up really, really early, like tomorrow morning, I have to leave my apartment at 4.30 to catch a 6 a.m. plane to, Lond- to Los Angeles, I'm not going to have dinner with friends tonight no. as I had planned to, but I don't, it's not a sacrifice anymore because I don't like myself when I'm depleted and sleep deprived. I don't like the person I become. Do you
2: find, you know, the famous saying, I think it was Maya Angelou, the, you know, no one's gonna remember what you did or what you accomplished, but how you made people feel. Mm -hmm. Do you think, Ariana, that you are now making people feel better about your interactions with them because of the person you are who's taking care of herself?
1: I really feel that I'm much more present. I'm really present in what I'm doing. I mean, I'm really present with you here. I'm not thinking, what am I doing next? Um, wh- who is texting me? And that is a function of, I think, being um, sufficiently recharged mm. not to be running on empty. We can all kind of be transactional sure, when we are running on empty, but then life loses the richness um, that otherwise is available to us. What life audits have you done? Oh, a lot of life <laughs> audits. I, I actually um, call it, uh, you can complete a project by dropping it. What I mean by that is that there are a lot of things that we start. Like I really wanted to learn to become a good skier. <laughs> How'd because, that go? You know, not well. <laughs> okay. uh, my daughters love to ski. I thought it'd be a great thing to share. And then at one point I realized, you know what? I'm never going to become a good skier, so I gave it up altogether. And when I go skiing with them, I'll sit down and have a cup of hot chocolate and read a book while and they're skiing. <laughs> and and um, learning German, you know, I always wanted to learn German. And one day I realized, you know what? I'm never going to learn German. I'm never going to invest the time. So. Mm-hmm. There's something important about declaring these projects done. Mm. Otherwise, even if you don't do anything about them, they stay kind of in your mind.
2: Uh, absolutely. I, I certainly feel a sense of guilt that I haven't done them. Yes. Until I think, well, how important is this really for my life? And then I can let go or try.
1: Exactly, and that's why, for example, I have no compunction not finishing a book. You know, I have friends who feel, I've started this book, I have to finish it. No, (laughs) if I started this book and it's not interesting enough, I've I've left plays. You know, I can go into a play and- So have
2: I. I'm exhausted, I'd rather sleep. Yes. Let's go home. You also, I spend too much time, especially at night, taking away from my sleep on my phone. Not just reading work, wasting time completely. And it sits by my bed. And when I get up to go I to the bathroom. I brought you the
1: phone bed. <laughs> what did you say? I brought you a phone bed. Oh. You know the phone bed that Thrive Global And you produce? put it like in the living room? Well, it's a charging station <laughs> that looks like a little bed. <laughs> It, you you it's put it idea. wherever you want outside your bedroom. Okay. You can put it in your kitchen, you can put it in the hallway, whatever you Probably want.
2: Probably the most valuable gift I will ever get. <laughs> Probably, truly, because I look at, you know, t- text messages and emails in the middle of the night when I wake up to go exactly. to the bathroom. Exactly, and
1: that's really not good for your health or for your baby. This is true. You, so you took your phone out of your room.
2: Your, your, yes. Everything, everything that is not an actual physical book all devices out of the out bedroom out of my room
1: i have a tv but i never watch it before i go to sleep so here's the thing about not charging your phone by your bed we can all say okay i will put it in the kitchen or something but we all are more likely to do something if there is a ritual attached mm-hmm. to it so that's the purpose of the phone bed it has a little blanket you oh. put the phone <laughs> under it you tuck it in you say good night and for me it's become like um the moment when I transition Mm. from my day life with all the demands on us to the time for me to recharge. And it's an arbitrary moment because there's never really an end to the day, right? You could stay on answering emails and handling things through the night. So I declare an end to my day by removing my phone Mm. from my bedroom and putting it in the little bed.
2: And instead of your phone next to your bed, you have a quote from Ralph Waldo Emerson. What is it?
1: Well, I have a lot of quotes. The latest, I, I sort of move them around. Yes. The one I have now is actually by Rumi, okay. which is, um, live life as though everything is rigged in your favor, Ah. which I love because every day in everybody's life is a mixture of good things happening and not s- sure. so good things happening. And when we look at the things that happened that are not what we wanted, we can often recognize that when we, go, when we look back, they're often the things that made possible other things.
2: There, some people could argue, skeptics could argue, okay, Ariana, this works for you because this is your business. You're writing about it, you run Thrive Global, you have books about it, this is your business. Well, that, it doesn't work, it doesn't fly in corporate America. To, you know, to, to, to the opposite side of that argument, you're working with companies, partnering with companies like Uber, Under Armour, Accenture, Obviously, you're on the Uber board. We'll talk about that more. But are, is corporate America shifting to accept this?
1: Yes, corporate America is shifting. Uh, there are, as always, you know, uh, companies that are ahead of the curve. Yeah. Um, but everybody's recognizing that um, if you don't take care of your employees, it's going to affect the bottom line. So the well-being of your employees is no longer sort of a nice-to-have HR benefit. Right. It's actually hardcore, bottom-line uh, priority because it affects recruitment. Mm-hmm. It affects retention. We have the data that shows that if you're burnt out, you have a 35% greater chance of leaving your job. And attrition is a very expensive, a big, it is uh, expensive. business item. It affects healthcare costs. And it affects productivity.
2: But I don't know that all corporate America just accepts. I mean, you have something, for example, the vacation email tool that literally will delete your emails but while also you're on we'll, vacation.
1: But just think how much sense that makes. If you're on vacation, you want to really recharge. Be with your family. It does. Be with your loved ones. So mm-hmm. what the Thrive Away email, which you can download for free, does is if I emailed you when you're on vacation, I would get an email back that said, Bob is on vacation until X date. If it's urgent, contact so-and-so. If it is not, email her again after that date. Hmm. This email will be deleted. <laughs> so here's the good news about it. You have something which you probably, I bet, have not had for a very long time, a week or two weeks, with zero in your email. Inbox. That has never happened
2: to me for a long very but I'm long guilty time. of it I mean I respond I send things no, but I, we
1: all are it's not like yeah. it's unique and so this then, helps us and then a lot of things are handled without you it's kind of humbling to see how much gets handled without it you. it really does are we're all not we're not that important. we're not that indispensable <laughs> and then when we're, we're all replaceable too yeah so when you return from vacation you don't have a mountain of things this is true what do your daughters think you have two daughters mm-hmm. what do they think of all this so both of them, Christina and Isabella, are believers and practitioners. They both sleep, and they, we kind of um, help each other. Like if I'm traveling, um, Isabella will text me if if um, if she senses because I posted something, whatever that I'm still up. So it's time to go to sleep. You know, we kind of <laughs> your daughters tell yes, you when yes, to get in bed. yes, absolutely. And um, my youngest daughter is a painter. She did art at Yale, and, and she's making a modest living selling her art. And she took all her savings and put it in the Series A of Thrive Global, which was, true which believer. was a great a example of good being investment. a true believer. Do they ever, while we're talking about your daughters,
2: do they ever feel pressure to reach the professional success that you have. I mean, now you define success differently, but you, I mean, you've written more than a dozen books, you've run for office, everyone knows who Ariana Huffington is, and I can imagine being the daughter of that
1: can be, I don't know, how do I live up to what my mom has done? You know, maybe when they were teenagers, you know, being a teenager is, is a hard time anyway. Sure. And I think it makes it harder um, if your mother has a public profile um, but not anymore, I think they're now in their 20s mm-hmm. and um, and and I think all that is behind them. And in fact, I tell all my girlfriends who still have teenage daughters that I want to do a PSA that says it gets better. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it does. My Someone described it to me. At, we were at the Fortune Most Powerful Women's yes. conference and someone there described it to me. I said, I have a little girl. Is it true she's going to hate me when she turns 13? And they said, well, you know, aliens come and abduct them for a while and then they come back to you. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and they that, come back to you. And
1: that's why we need to not feel guilty about it. In fact, I I talked about that at the conference. I said, you know, it's really hard for working mothers because I think they take the baby out and they put the guilt in.
2: A hundred percent. And working fathers, too. I mean, you know, people who really contribute equally. Um, I'm
1: very happy that your husband is going to take a three month. So am I. and now Time you am off and, for, and I for our want next him to baby. write
2: for Thrive Global to be a role model <laughs> to other fathers. Well, first of all, now he definitely has to take three yes. months off that you've <laughs> because announced, I've it. announced. And it. now his bosses know before he's told them. So I'm glad that Ariana has, has said that. <laughs> I will ask him to write about that indeed. Um, let's talk a little bit about about uh, the news and Huffington Post and just your building of where everyone in the world who didn't know your name then certainly knew your name when you built the Huffington Post. You founded it in 2005 without any traditional media background, and then it explodes. You're the first online news organization to eventually win a Pulitzer. Why do you think the Huffington Post worked?
1: So, again, the Huffington Post tapped into something in the zeitgeist, which is the best thing for a business, um, I don't even if, if you even remember what it was like in 2005. I you do. Know? I am old. You're not. <laughs> yeah, Bloggers were ridiculed as people in their parents' basements, right. you know, in pajamas who couldn't get a job. And now there is no journalist who isn't blogging. You know, the distinction between writing and blogging is pretty much eradicated. Uh, what I wanted to do is, I saw that the conversation was moving online, Mm -hmm. and I wanted a lot of the great voices of our time to be able to be part of that conversation, people who would never start a blog like people that I had on the first day when we launched, you know, like Nora Ephron and Walter Cronkite and yeah. Larry David and John Cusack and Ellen DeGeneres. And, and I wanted to make it super easy for them. A lot of these people could have written for the New York Times or PED page, but they wouldn't have bothered because, you know, they had projects and they didn't want to have to deal with editors, etc.
2: So they just wanted to
1: put their feelings yep. out there. And move on. So, you know, sometimes it would take them 20 minutes to write something, it could often become a conversation starter. And uh, there was a moment when it was clear what we were doing, which mm-hmm. was when um, it was revealed who Deep Throat was. And everybody wanted Nora Ephron, who had been married to Carl Bernstein, to go on TV or write sure. about what did she know, did she know who he was, etc. So Nora called me up and said, you know what? I'm not going to go on CNN, sorry. <laughs> I'm not going to write it for the New York Times. I'm just going to write it for, for half Post. Wow. He said, because I don't really want to put makeup on and go on TV. I, she, she literally took 20 minutes, wrote it. And then here's what we realized. It was everywhere. Yeah. We realized it didn't matter anymore where it appeared. If it was interesting, it it would be everyone, CNN picked it up, the New York Times picked it up. So that was like a turning point of understanding how the world of media had changed. Mm -hmm. And then we also did a lot of traditional journalism of the kind that won the Pulitzer. But the game changer, the differentiator was basically providing a platform Mm. for people well known and not well known to express their views. So we have so many platforms now.
2: Obviously, uh, social media has completely changed the game, whether it's 140 characters on on Twitter, whether it's a post as long as you would like it to be, or uh, on Facebook or a Facebook Live. However, uh, with that has come the challenge of fake news and authenticity. And we see uh, tech execs dealing with it right now. Outlets being used by Russian troll farms to influence American politics in the election. Where do you fall in that debate? What do you see happening?
1: I think it's a very uh, dangerous moment. Dangerous
2: Uh, moment? Yes.
1: It's a moment when uh, we are realizing that we can't just leave it all to algorithms. Hmm. Because in the attention economy, um, what is good for this company's bottom line is not good for democracy. Because what happens is the algorithms are going to... um, Feed you content that confirms your biases because what what are the what are the algorithms designed to achieve? They're designed to get you to click mm. and you're going to be more likely to click if you're a conservative Republican voting for Donald Trump to a post that tells you that um, Hillary Clinton is an ax murderer and you're more likely Uh, to click if you're um, a liberal supporter of Hillary Clinton on a post that tells you that Donald Trump will put scientists who defend climate change to jail. Mm. Now, neither of these things happens to be true, but confirmation bias Mm. is really what drives uh, these algorithms. What's the solution then? If you were sitting atop one of these companies, What would you do? I think this is the time where we need to put the public interest above the bottom line Mm. uh, for the interest of democracy and ultimately for the interest of the companies, because we are seeing again and again uh, that companies that are being driven primarily by profit or growth or quarterly earnings end up paying a price because you can no longer hide behind... uh, Uh, billboards with um, great marketing campaigns you know the public knows what's happening Mm -hmm. and that affects loyalty and it affects ultimately uh, the business metrics
2: let's talk about a company you are working with others to turn around and that is uber you sit on the board of uber and the company's dealing with a major turnaround you have new leadership new CEO uh, after widespread claims of, of sexual uh, harassment, you've been coined Uber's most influential independent board member.
1: Do you agree? Well, I was the only woman. <laughs> so when you was, thank goodness, <laughs> I, not was, true yes, anymore. I brought another great woman, Wandi uh, Martello, and uh, we're joined by a third woman, Ursula Burns, the former CEO of Xerox, which is fantastic, but when the crisis started, when Susan Fowler's blog appeared, yeah. I was the only woman. So when a company is suddenly facing um, a sexist crisis and you're the only woman- They turn uh, to you. Well, they turn to you, and I also felt it was my responsibility mm to reassure employees that ma- that management's feet were going to be held to the fire and that we're going to bring about real changes. What
2: did you think when you read Susan Fowler's blog post, when you read her account of what she had experienced?
1: Um, it was incredibly depressing, and uh, it was really very personal for me. You know, I'm somebody who's fought for women's rights all my life, who has two young daughters, so it, it really, Uh, made me want to uh, dig deep, Mm -hmm. find out all the problems, all the perpetrators, and move very fast. I mean, I flew to San Francisco. I spoke at the first All Hands uh, two days after the Susan Fowler blog post had appeared. I made it very clear that uh, we were going to abandon this cult of the top performer, which is often what excuses bad behavior in companies everywhere, when but especially when in the valley,
2: succeeding so much financially.
1: When you are delivering,
2: yeah. you're the go- you're the golden child of Silicon
1: Valley. Exactly. Right? So I called it uh, from now on no brilliant jerks will be allowed. <laughs> and then after Eric Holder was brought on to conduct an um, yes, investigation, a thorough investigation on the day when we announced the um, unanimous um, endorsement of all his 47 recommendations, Mm -hmm. I also announced the beginning of changes to Uber's cultural values. Because one of the cultural values was being always on. That's not a cultural value. That's a recipe for disaster. Mm. Another one was working harder, smarter, longer. And I explained (laughs) that. Smarter and longer Don't go together. are contradictory. And we have all the data. We are a data driven culture. We need to recognize that.
2: You know, when you spent time with former CEO uh, Travis Kalanick uh, and asked you to be on the board, there, there are reports, details of, you know, you spent four hours together. You know, you really got to know him. And I, I wonder if you think, Arianna, what you make of him as a leader. And is Uber better now with new leadership?
1: Well, I think Travis is on his own um, journey of uh, becoming a better leader. As he said, you know, at the first all hands, you know, I'm sorry I led the company to this point. Mm -hmm. So right now, um, he's a member of the board. He was the one at the all hands uh, who introduced Dara, Uh, our new CEO to the employees, pass the baton on. So we are now in a place where we can really bring the board together and and, uh, all rally behind the new CEO who Mm -hmm. has had a tremendous um, welcome from employees and from drivers.
2: You said the goal should be not just fix Uber, but fix the systemic culture of Silicon Valley. Otherwise, every year, We will produce new reports asking why aren't women advancing? Case in point, the memo by one Google engineer that ultimately got let go of the company, but that argued that biological differences between men and women are a reason why not as many women are in these these tech and engineering positions. Uh, Is this a moment of change, Ariana, or are we just talking about it?
1: No, I think it is a moment of change. I think one of the things that has become clear is that a culture fueled by burnout is particularly hard on women. Um, Women process stress differently. Again, we have the data. Women in stressful jobs have a 40% greater risk of diabetes and heart disease. Mm. So if we can um, change the workplace culture to make it um, more um, welcoming for women, Mm. we are also going to improve behavior and we're going to improve outcomes. But well, what about those who might hear that argument from you and say, well, aren't you
2: just saying that women are different than men and can't handle stressful jobs?
1: It's not really about not handling stressful jobs. It's about internalizing stress differently. Ah. You know, we, we are more perfectionist. Uh, we know sure. that. That yes. doesn't mean we are not as competent and as able to do any job. Mm. It just means that, uh, um, but we it have a away at us differently. Yes, it is a away. Exactly. We have this voice that I call the obnoxious roommate living in our head that judges us, that doubts us, that yeah. puts us down. We need to deal with all these things. Have you lived sexism? Have you dealt with sexism in your career? You know, I, most of my life, worked uh, out of my home office writing books. I wrote 15 books. So I wasn't really in the middle of corporate environments. But, but, but running Huffington
2: Post, selling it to AOL. Yes, I mean, you
1: know, uh, nothing major, nothing like what we are reading yeah. and, uh, and hearing about and, and what I personally heard uh, from a lot of the women I talked to during my listening sessions. Mm-hmm.
2: Let's end on, on politics. Since 2003, you ran for governor of California as an independent. Uh, you're a young woman any interest in running
1: again? Oh, God, and I'm not a young woman. You are a young woman, Ariana. <laughs> you are. Uh, but I, no, no, I um, I love my, um, my new job. Uh, I love building a company around a mission that I desperately care about. And it's actually not disconnected from politics because... What drove me into politics was wanting to sort of alleviate suffering. Mm -hmm. And I think right now the way we work and live is creating a lot of unnecessary suffering. It is. And uh, if we can um, change our beliefs and change the way workplaces are designed, because let's face it, they were designed by men, and they're not working. They're not working for women, they're not working for men, they're not working for polar bears.
2: (laughs) Polar bears.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You've said you have no interest in in your legacy. Really? Uh, I have no interest in my legacy because um, I don't believe death is the end. Hmm. So for me, um, sort of the soul goes on. and, uh, And that's a more important journey than what's left behind. And finally, what do you want your daughters to say about you
2: one day when they are asked by their children... Tell me about your mom. Um,
1: I want them to say um, what I say about my mom, um, that they felt uh, loved unconditionally. Arianna Huffington, thank you. Thank you.
2: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Boss Files. If you're a new fan of the show, please go to Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app and subscribe. While you're there, leave us a review and let us know how we're doing. As always, you can follow me at Poppy Harlow CNN.